This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're here talking about food and holiday stuff, all kinds of questions about cooking food. Do you have any questions about that? We'd like to hear from you. Our number, 844-724-8255. Sitting in with me is uh, Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American. Do you do a lot of cooking during the holiday season, Sophie? I honestly, I do a lot of, I'll be the sous chef a lot for my parents <laughs> who host Thanksgiving. And so I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll help out, but I usually am not the one doing the cooking. Okay. We're going to, well, hopefully a lot of folks will be asking questions. We usually get lots of questions here. And I want to bring on Dan Souza, uh, chef of, of America's uh, Test Kitchen based in, in Boston, Massachusetts. He's uh, sticking around with us. He's also editor-in-chief of Cooks Illustrated. And as I say, we're answering your questions about the science behind cooking, our favorite holiday foods, our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. You can also tweet us at SciFry. And let's go right to the phones because here's, I think, the most popular question we get. Sharon in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Um, I, I have problems getting all of the turkey to come out right. If, it, if most of it comes out beautiful, some of it comes out wrong. And I have spent a fortune on fancy meat thermometers, and I, I know not to put the, uh, the thing against the bone, and I know not to leave it too close to the surface, and I still get some coming out raw and some coming out just fine. You are what am I doing good wrong? company. I can't tell you how many <laughs> times I have asked this question and our listeners, and maybe Dan, tell us what we're doing wrong here. <laughs> yeah, so I, I want to take the blame off of the collar and off of you, Ira, because this is, it's actually a, a really an issue of the turkey shape and size where, uh, and the muscle composition, where you have the breast meat, which is much leaner and needs to cook to about 160 to 165 degrees. And then you have the dark meat, which is denser, um, and kind of tucked away under the bird, and that needs to get to a higher temperature, about 175 degrees, in order to be nice. So it's this really tricky battle of trying to get these things to line up. So, but there are some strategies you can use. One that I think is really the simplest, a little bit of upfront prep, but then you get a beautiful bird at the end, is to spatchcock the bird, um, or butterfly it is another term. And so you're using some really strong kitchen shears. You're cutting out the backbone. Um, flipping the, the turkey over so that all the skin is facing up and you're pressing down on the breastbone to flatten it out a little bit. And what's great about this method, you, know, you, you put it directly onto a sheet pan or, or a roasting pan and the heat from the bottom of the metal goes right into the dark meat. So those thighs are kind of spray, mm. splayed out there. Um, and so they cook a lot more quickly than they normally would. And that should help things cook at the same pace. If you're running into issues where you're temping the breast and it's getting too hot by the time, you know, waiting for the dark meat to come up, it's really helpful to make a kind of a, almost a heart-shaped little shield out of aluminum foil that you can pop over the top of the breast. And that reflects off some of the radiant heat coming from the oven. And that will actually slow down the cooking of that delicate breast meat while you wait for the dark meat to come up. Interesting. So using a, a combination of those two things, you can really dial it in and kind of control those variables. Mm -hmm. My question about spatchcocking is that I know about spatchcocking chickens, but turkeys can be really big. So is it is it do you ever run into an issue with spatchcocking like a really big bird and not being able to to fit it on the pan? Yeah. So yes, if you're working with a really large bird, that can that can definitely be tricky. Um, we really love to look for birds that are in like the 12 to 14 pound range. So it's on the smaller side. Um, and if you want to do like if you're serving a lot, lot more people, doing a separate roasting pan that has, you know, some thighs in it or another chicken breast, 
The reason being, these problems we're talking about, they get exacerbated as you go up in size on the bird because you have so much more volume to get through in terms of cooking that breast. So, uh, but a spatchcock, you know, 12 to 14 pound bird will absolutely fit nicely um, in, a, in a roasting pan or on a, on a sheet pan. Good question. Yeah, good answer too. Let's, <laughs> let's go. Uh, let's go to Baltimore <clears throat> County, Maryland to uh, Woodstock there. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Yeah, yeah good afternoon. Um, yeah, my question is for Dave Souza. Uh, about how to avoid the airplane hanger effect in a two crust from scratch apple pie. Wow! What, what, tell, <laughs> tell it. <laughs> what is that Woodstock? What is that effect? Describe it to us, who people who are oh, okay. looking at the you radio the, now. You got the top crust of your apple pie. It's finished baking. It is a big dome. It's domed up. It looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. And then you let the pie cool. You cut into it, and it's just a big pocket of air. And there's a sad thing of apple filling lying down in the bottom crust. Wow. That and, sounds tragic. Yeah, I think I heard Julie um, with Chris Kimball years ago refer to it as an airplane yeah. hanger effect. And I, I presume that that was the, the official term in the bakery trade. Well, Dan, it sounds like we have a we have a heat physics question here. Yeah, this is a great question, and I, I actually have never heard it referred to as the airplane hanger, but I knew immediately what you were talking about. It's a really good visual, that huge kind of gap between the filling and the and the crust at the top. So the reason this happens is the apples are collapsing during baking, but that crust sets in shape much earlier in the process. Um, and so there's actually a really nifty technique that we've employed in some of our recipes where we take advantage of a um, a food science phenomenon called persistent firmness, where if um, kind of calcium and pectin rich, um, some uh, some pieces of produce that are calcium and pectin rich, if you heat them to a low temperature, usually are in like the kind of 130 to 150 range, and you let them hang there for about 20 to 30 minutes, you you kind of uh, reinforce some of the um, some of that pectin and those bonds, and so that even after you heat it to a higher temperature later. Uh, they'll maintain more of that their structure and they won't collapse as much. So <clears throat> an easy way to do it is to get a little butter going in a skillet and throw your apples in there and sugar, toss, toss, toss until everything's kind of nice and warm, not super hot, but warm, cover it and let it sit for about 20 minutes off heat and then use that in your pie. Um, and it works remarkably well. You'll find that uh, you, you will have much less of an airplane hanger effect wow. and a much fuller slice of pie. You're, you're civil engineering your pie. <laughs> pie. Pie is a big engineering feat, so that makes sense. <laughs> Let's go to Wayne in Queens, New York. Hi, Wayne. Wayne, hello? yes, go ahead. Oh, hello. How you doing? Thank you for taking my call. Uh, quick question. I have, um, you know, like I said, I have some vegan family members, and, you know, Thanksgiving Day has a lot of meat and a lot of heavy meals, and I need to shed a few pounds myself. I want to know, do you guys have, like, a, a recipe for keeping in the family of gourds, like we were talking earlier, mm. for a butternut squash with not so much heavy cream and stuff like that, something that's relatively light that I could that I could make easily? Good question. Okay, thank you thank for you calling. So yeah. What do you do for vegetarians and maybe something with butternut squash? Dan, got yeah. something there? Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I honestly, I think the, there's so many great sides for, um, for vegetarians. You almost don't even need a main. You know, I think turkey, <laughs> turkey gets... A lot of the credit, but we all we all come to the table for those sides. But um, a really nice way to treat butternut squash is a recipe I did a long time ago, where you um, you peel it and then slice it thin, so you have kind of quarter inch um, 
thick slices of it. Lay them out on a sheet pan with a bunch of olive oil. If you don't want to use butter, that's fine. Um, and roast them low in the oven so they get nice browning, especially on the bottom. Mm. Um, and take them out. They get nice and tender. And then spread them out on a platter. And they're basically a canvas for flavors. So I, I love doing hazelnuts on top and chives and lemon. Um, but you could do like a really nice tahini and, and lemon situation. Um, it's kind of up, up, up to you at that point how you want to top them. But um, it really f- makes the squash front and center that, and that nice browning. And you're not adding more sweetness to it because it's already sweet enough. So you're going with nice savory combinations on top. And it's gorgeous platter to put out for, for the table. Yeah, you don't have to do that on Thanksgiving. You can use that. I'm getting hungry I listening. Really, I also <laughs> really like that because, yeah, a lot of times something that's already sweet, like the sweet potatoes and marshmallows on top. Why did we start putting <laughs> marshmallows on top? It's true. I know. I know. I mean, it, it, it takes it fully in dessert territory. Not that I won't totally, <laughs> do, totally go for that dish, but, um, but old yeah. family I recipes. Know, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Let's go to let's go to uh, Rochester, New York. Julie. Hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Go ahead. Um, so I'm now vegetarian, but uh, many years ago, over 20 years ago, I cooked my first and only turkey, and I didn't know what I was doing, so I got a very large turkey, um, and I didn't defrost it for long enough. So what I ended up doing was, I know this is really bad, but in an attempt to like get all the stuff inside out and make sure it was ready for the oven, I ended up running it underwater and kind of aggressively defrosting it. So my question is, how close did I come to food poisoning all of my guests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's some, this is some deep forensic um, uh, research we have to do here to figure that out. Um, you know, you definitely obviously want to be careful with, with poultry and, and thawing and all that. And the best way, if you can, is to just put it in your fridge long enough ahead of time that it's going to be totally thawed out. Um, right. So you don't have to be you know, running underwater and stuff like that. But there's a couple things with food safety. So there's obviously how you handle it beforehand, and you don't want to keep it at a warm temperature for more than two hours. You want to keep it refrigerated. But the final step in all this process is the cooking. And so if you you know have messed up a little bit along the way, as long as you cook that bird to a high enough internal temperature, and what we really shoot for is um, 165 will get it done in less than a second, and that's the um, that's why the USDA kind of recommends that. You can go a little bit lower than that as long as it stays at that temperature long enough. Uh, so 160 degrees, if you're there for, you know, I think it's something like a minute and a half, but go for like five minutes or more, it'll kill the same number of bacteria mm. um, in terms of salmonella. So that that final step is um, the most crucial. So uh, yes, you want to thaw it in your fridge if you can. Um, and if you're doing it, you know, last minute under running water, um, you can put it in cold water and every 30 minutes you want to change that out for fresh cold water just to make sure that uh, the temperature isn't climbing up too much. That's kind of best practices. Yeah. But yeah, that, that, that final step using a good instant read thermometer and um, looking for the right safe temp is key. I hate it when I poison my guests. Well, I, when I <laughs> yeah, heard this story, no one wants that. I, heard, I thought this was going to be worse. I thought it was going to be a case of a partially frozen turkey being deep fried and exploding. <laughs> That's um, <spoiled. laughs> I mean, are you pro or anti deep frying turkey in general? Oh, me! I, I, deep frying is a fabulous method to um, to cook a turkey as long as you can do it safely, right? right. So you have you have the the fire set up far away from the house. You're working with a very dry bird. Obviously, you don't want ice and water involved there. 
um, and you have a, the right rig and setup for it, your pot's not you know overfilled with oil. But um, it's an incredibly efficient way. It can cook a turkey in you know probably half the time it takes to roast yeah. it. You do get great skin, and um, and you know what frying is really a, a steaming method. So the outside is getting exposed to the hot oil and crisping, but the inside is steaming and at a relatively gentle temperature. So you get fabulous meat out of that as well. I think that's what we're Be doing. Be careful. Yeah, we're doing that this year. We've had we've done it a few times. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking about uh, people making their Thanksgiving food and lots of questions. Let's go to Maine. Rob in Maine, welcome to Science Friday. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, I'm located in Caribou, Maine, northern Aroostook County, where big-time potato production up here. Uh, this time of year, uh, friends and neighbors and family and everybody's got 50-pound sacks of potatoes all over the place of all different kinds of varieties. And I was wondering if, uh, if you'd be willing to discuss uh, different varieties and their best intended uses. We have bakers and fryers and mashers and mm. potatoes. and Yeah, that'd be interesting to hear. Okay. Thanks for calling, Rob. Absolutely. Well, I, I have family from up in Maine, not quite far, not quite that far up, but um, I love Maine potatoes. Uh, so I really appreciate this call. So there are really three categories that you're going to see in most supermarkets, um, and we can break them down basically on their starch content. And so you have at the high end of the starch range, you have russet potatoes. In the middle, you have Yukon Golds or kind of an all-purpose potato. And then you have your uh, red potatoes, which can be different colors, but they're the small, creamy ones. Um, and so you're looking at about 20% starch by weight up in the russets, uh, and then 18 and 16 as you kind of go down there. Um, and that really determines the, the final texture that they cook up to. So you have russets, they'll fracture a lot um, as they cook, and you get that dry, fluffy texture. So they're fabulous for mashed potatoes because they can soak up so much richness. Uh, they're also really ideal for, for roasting um, and getting that crisp texture and for french fries because they have a, kind of a lower moisture content um, proportionally. On the other, you know, the far end of the spectrum with the red potatoes, they are, they really hold their shape well because they don't have as much starch. They don't uh, break up into that fluffy texture. They remain really creamy. So potato salads are fabulous with, um, and they're really good in soups because they hold together. So that, that's those. And then the all-purpose potato, the Yukon Gold is the most common one, really sits in the middle. And so you can make a great mash with it. You can roast it. Um, it will hold its shape relatively well in a salad. But you know, if you're unsure, Yukon Gold is a pretty safe place to go. But if you're, you know, baking a potato, you want to go for your russets. Right. If you're definitely going to do a s salad, the red reds are nice. Well, in your experience with all this Thanksgiving food, what is the easiest thing to make for somebody who who's starting out making a Thanksgiving meal? The easiest thing. I mean, I think good mashed potatoes are, are pretty easy. I, I would probably go for that. You know, you and, start and what makes cold. good mashed potatoes? Um, so I think, you know, you're starting with um, your potatoes cut to about the same size. That's really key. So if you, you can make them smaller slices, they just need to be the same dimension so that you don't get some parts overcooking while the other parts uh, not cook through. You want to start them in cold, well-salted water, bring it up and then don't boil it. Just kind of a, a you know, just a simmer there uh, so you don't break them apart. Um, you know, strain them off and you want to process them while they're still hot. So going through a ricer or a food mill will give you a really smooth texture and then add your butter first, which will help coat some of that starch uh, before you add your milk or your cream to it. Um, and that, that helps it so stay really nice and fluffy as opposed to getting gummy or too dense. Um, and then use plenty of salt, season it up with salt. And make them you know, no more than an hour before dinner. And if you do make them ahead of time, put them in a pot. I mean, put them in a bowl uh, over a pot of simmering water so that they stay nice and hot. That's kind of the key there. I think that's a pretty pretty easy one to start with. Yeah, and 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 you know, something about 
food that tastes better the second day than some of the turkeys and whatever. <laughs> well, it's true. And you have to make everything so you can make that Thanksgiving sandwich in the evening, right? I mean, that is yes. The meal's good. The meal's good, but the sandwich is great. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the leftovers are they, they taste better as leftovers than they do the day of Thanksgiving. And I don't know why, but they do. Yeah, well, you know, all those sauces and whatever take take time. They, they sit there. Yeah, and the flavors have to meld together, I guess. They sink in. Well, so, so they, fair. They, they definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that well known? I mean, it's not just our imagination. Dan. That no, not, not at all. Not at all, especially in something like a stew where, um, you know, you have big pieces of meat kind of in there and you get flavor penetration from the sauce going into it and and kind of vice versa. So, no, it's 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 fact. Um, you know, a stew will taste better the next day. And, I'll, you know, there's some some recipes and stews that will go, uh, you know, a few days and taste their best. So, um, yeah, there's truth great. to that. That's great. Dan, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today and for all your advice. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Dan Souza, editor-in-chief of uh, Cooks Illustrated. Also, Sophie, thank you for hanging out with us today. It's been a pleasure. Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American.